isn't it fun listening to our kids and our grandkids as they learn to talk? Hearing them say for the very first time, Mama, Dada, or better than that, Grammy, or Poppy. The problem is they learn to say that, and then they learn to say other things like mine, no, now, or what about this one, not fair. I mean, their bigger brother or sister gets to do something they can't do, and they say not fair. They're not able to get ice cream because they didn't eat their vegetables, and they say not fair. They get a spanking or they get put in time out because they punch someone else and they say, not fair. And it doesn't stop when you grow out of being a child. As a teenager, you try out for the team and you don't make the team, but the coach's son makes the team. And you say, not fair. You grow up and, and you apply for a job and you're the most qualified candidate for the job, but you don't get the job and you say not fair. Or you work hard, you, you put in extra hours, you do the best you can, but you don't get a raise and you say not fair. Or let's go a little bit deeper. You want to have kids and you're not able to have kids. Not fair. You eat right, you exercise, but you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with heart disease or, or cancer. Not fair. Or what about suddenly without, without any time to prepare your spouse or your child dies? Not fair. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing our series on the book of Ecclesiastes that we, we've called Discovering Meaning in Life. And let me remind you where we have been. This book was written by Solomon. He's the son of David. He's the king of Israel. And he is the wisest, wealthiest man alive. He started out his life in pursuit of God, the Bible tells us that he loved God with all of his heart, but at some point during his life, he turned from God and began pursuing the gods of this world. And as he did, his life began to unravel, unravel and, and his life began a downward spiral out of control. And, and as he was going down and down and down and down, he said this about life. He said, life is empty. Life is meaningless. Life is futile. Life has no purpose. Life is useless. He said that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In chapter 2, he, began to tell us, uh, he begins to tell us some of the roads, some of the paths that he went down as he tried to find meaning in life. And he tells us that he pursued learning and education. He pursued pleasure, all kinds of pleasure. He pursued work, hard work. He pursued money and success and the things that money could buy. But even with all of that, he said life is meaningless. Life is empty. 
In chapter 2, verse 17, he said this, I hate my life because everything under the sun is troubling. Everything is meaningless. But I want you to understand, that's always how it will be if we pursue life under the sun. If we pursue life without God. No matter what else you have in life, if you don't have a relationship with God, there is going to be an emptiness. There is going to be a void in your life. And you're going to feel like everything else is meaningless. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we listened as, as Solomon took us, took us on this journey through time. And he tells us that, that life is filled with different seasons Different moments in life. Some are good and some are bad. Some are painful and some are joyful. But the key to contentment in life, the key to making it through life, is trusting God in everything. We, we trust Him in the good times. That's easy. But we also trust Him in the bad. We trust Him when, when things are joyful, but we also trust Him when things are painful. And when we do... We discover that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God is using everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for our good as we walk through life. This is what Solomon said in chapter 3, verse 11. He said, God makes everything beautiful in its own time. Everything can become beautiful in time. Another translation of that verse said, God makes everything happen at just the right time. You see, we can spend our lives wondering why things happen and never discover the why, or we can trust God, realizing that He loves us, realizing that He's in control, and realizing that He's going to work all things together for our good. Listen, if you don't learn to trust God in life with everything, you're going to become bitter in life. But as we continue through chapter 3 and we get to verse 16, we discover that Solomon discovers another truth in his mind about life. And that is life isn't fair. You see, the truth that every child, every teenager, every adult of every generation, of every age has discovered, Solomon Discovered, life isn't fair. And what you need to understand this morning is that is a truth. Life isn't fair. It never has been. It never will be until God makes everything right. And as Solomon takes us on a journey from verse 16 through chapter 4, Solomon gives us five things that happen in life that prove that life isn't fair. The first thing he says is this, man's sense of justice isn't always just. In other words, there is injustice in life. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 16. He said, I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. Solomon said, when you live life under the sun, when life is lived apart from God, there is corruption. There is 
injustice. Another translation of that verse says it this way. Everywhere on earth I saw violence and injustice instead of fairness and justice. The word that Solomon uses here to describe injustice describes corruption in the government. Disruption, corruption in the legal system. Solomon was the king. Solomon was in charge. Solomon was on the throne. He was the sovereign ruler of Israel. And yet as he observed the world, the inequity that takes place in the world, the corruption that he saw in the courts, he said it just isn't fair. Here in America we pride ourselves on justice, on our justice system. Even in our pledge of allegiance to the flag, we say that we're one nation under God with liberty and what? And justice for all. And for the most part, we do a good job of that. When you compare America to other nations, our judicial system is the best. But the truth is, at times, that justice that we have isn't the same for everyone. That's just a fact. You see, depending on your last name, depending on the color of your skin, depending on the money you have, you may or you may not have justice. Here in America, there are times that the guilty go free. And here in America, there are times that the innocent go to prison unjustly because they don't have the money, they don't have the resources for good representation. We see kids from poor neighborhoods, kids who are minorities, who are stereotyped, and who are presumed guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around. We see those who have connections who are given breaks and they get off even though they are guilty. Today, in some of our systems, we have hardened criminals who are arrested for crimes, who are let go without bail to get back on the streets only to commit other crimes. And we also have drunk drivers who have multiple offenses, but because of who they know, they get off time and time again until one day they're driving drunk behind the wheel and they kill someone. Our justice isn't always just. And the truth is, it never will be this side of eternity. As long as there are sinful people, as long as there are imperfect people, we will have imperfect justice. Now many of us don't like to hear that. But that is a reality. That is a truth. Now, as Christians, the Bible makes it clear that we, of all people, should be working for justice for everyone. And yet, we understand that here, in a sinful world, it's not going to happen this side of eternity. And Solomon, for a brief moment of time, took his eyes off of the world he set his eyes back on God, and he said this in verse 17. He said, I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. There's coming a day when God will right every wrong. There's coming a day when God will judge and justice will rule the earth. 
but it won't be till he comes back. So there's injustice in the world. The second thing that Solomon noticed is that those with power oppress the powerless. Listen to what he said in chapter 4 verse 1. He said, again, I observed all the oppression that that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears, the pain, the agony of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. Now the word that, that Solomon uses here for oppression describes acts of abuse or or of power or authority. It's the, the burdening, the trampling, the crushing of those who are less fortunate than we are. It is those who wield the power, who wield the power, using that power against the powerless. Now, and as we observe the world, there are oppressive governments, there are oppressive employers, there are oppressive spouses. I mean, oppression comes in all shapes and sizes. Oppression can be as awful and wicked as slavery, and it can be something as simple as someone paying another person less than they deserve for the job that they do. We all know about our past history of slavery and how awful and how terrible that was. But slavery didn't begin in America. You see, slavery has always been a problem because there is sinful man. And slavery didn't end when it was eradicated in America. There is still slavery all around the world today. People are forced into slavery for work. People are forced into slavery for sex. People are forced into slavery for all kinds of things. People oppress. By putting others into slavery. And then there are people who oppress by making people work in unsafe working conditions. That's oppression. And we see that all around the United States. We see that all around the world. And then there is oppression through slumlords who charge rent way above the value of a place because people can't afford anything else and they need a place to live. And even though the place is unsafe and it is unclean, they can charge what they want to. And then there are are those um, who, who loan sharks who charge exorbitant interest because people don't have credit or they have bad credit. And then there are those who gouge prices because there is a shortage, a shortage of gas, a shortage of food, or a shortage of something else. And every one of those things are a form of oppression. It's everywhere. People taking advantage of other people. Why? Why do we do that? We do that because we are sinful, selfish, self-centered people. I want you to listen to what Solomon said. As he noticed all this injustice, as he noticed all this impression, in verses 2 and 3 he said, So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living, but most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. It's Solomon. I mean, if anyone had the power to change what was going on, it was Solomon. He sat on the throne, and yet he couldn't change it all. 
And as he looked at all this injustice, as he looked at all this impression, oppression, he said, you know, it's better to be dead than alive. Because if you live, bad things are going to happen. But best of all is to never be born. You, you listen to that and you go, wow, that's so cynical, isn't it? But that's how you look at life under the sun. I mean, when you look at the bad things that are happening in the world, when you look at the oppression, when you look at the injustice and all the other things that are taking place, if you are looking at these things, not realizing that there is a God who will one day right every wrong, it's overwhelming. And praise God, praise God, we who are followers of Jesus, we're not living for this world. We're living for something else. Because in this world, we're never going to find what we're looking for. And then Solomon says this. He says there is envy and greed that motivates us to always want more. Listen to what he said in verse 4. He said, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Solomon said the people, the reason people want to be successful is because they look at what other people have and they want it. And so they work hard or they steal or they do something else so they can get what other people have. Understand that that little green-eyed monster, envy, it's everywhere. People want what you have. But understand, people not only want what you have, People don't want you to have what you have. You see, that's where envy always takes us. The root word for envy in the Old Testament is found 87 times. You know what that tells me? It tells me this was a problem for the Old Testament Jews. It's also a problem for us today, isn't it? Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs. He said, anger is cruel, wrath is like a flood. But jealousy, envy is even more dangerous. Did you get that? Anger and wrath are like a flood that can destroy. But envy, oh goodness, envy is more dangerous than both of them. Envy is that unhappy feeling you have when you want something that someone else has or you want to be something that someone is. Someone said envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings Instead of your own. The, our word for envy, the English word for envy, comes from the root word, which means to cast an evil eye. And really, that's a good definition of envy because envy starts with the eyes, doesn't it? I mean, a beautiful woman walks into a room and all the other women look at her and they're envious. We pull into a parking lot and a new car or truck pulls in beside us and we're we're envious. We're invited to watch the ball game at our friend's house, and we get over there, and they have a 75-inch 4K definition TV with surround sound. You feel like you're at the game, and you're envious. Somebody's phone rings. They pull it out, and they have the brand-new iPhone. And you got to have one, even though you bought a phone a year ago. You're envious. There's all kinds of envy. There's house envy. I mean, you say, all I want is a house. It doesn't matter. I just want a house. Well, trust me. You get a house, you're going to want more. You're going to want nicer. You're going to want better. You're going to want to fix it up if you don't want to move somewhere else. 
There's house envy. There's boat envy. I mean, you want a boat and you beg your spouse, let me have a boat, let me have a boat, let me have a boat. They finally give in. You get the boat. You take it out on the lake. You're so proud and you look around at everybody else's boat. You're envious. There's relational envy. Single people look at married people and they say, I wish I was married. Married people look at single people and say, I wish I had that kind of freedom. I mean, there's all kind of envy. And envy unchecked will destroy. Because envy inevitably always takes us to the point where we not only want what you have, we don't think it's fair that you have what you have. You see, envy not only wants my grass to be greener, envy wants your grass to turn brown. Always happens. Envy causes people to work long hours and ignore their children, their spouse, so that they can have more things. Envy causes people to steal. Envy causes people to vandalize other people's property. Envy causes people to burn down and destroy because they don't like it that they have. That's what envy does. Solomon says, that's not fair. It's not fair. And then he says this, working hard doesn't remove the loneliness of life. In verses 7 and 8, he says, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This, this is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? And it's all so meaningless and depressing. He says there's this man who's alone. He doesn't have anybody in his life. And he's working hard so that he can get all of these things. Then he looks around and he says, I have no one to enjoy it with. I have no one to leave it to. And all of a sudden he realizes that that even when you have all of these things, it's not going to fill the void and emptiness in your life if you don't have people. You see, you need to understand that the things of this world will never fill the emptiness in your life. You weren't made for things. But hear me. You were made for relationships. God created you. So that you could have a relationship with him. He didn't need you. But he created you. He created me. So that we could have the joy of having a relationship with almighty God. A personal relationship. So that we could be a, a part of his family. He created us for relationship. But not just with, with him. He created us for relationship with others. That's, that's why when he created Adam. It wasn't long before he created Eve. That's why when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to pay for our sin, he didn't just leave us there. He told us to go and make other disciples. And, and then we see that the church was born. And the church were these Christians who gathered together in relationship with one another. Why? Because God didn't create us to be alone. He created us for relationships. By the way, that's why you need to be in a small group. 
because you can come here every Sunday, you can be blessed by the singing you will be. Hopefully you'll be encouraged and challenged and sometimes convicted by the message. I hope you will be. You'll have a chance to, to give and pray and do other things. But here's, here's what I want you to know. You're not going to get what you need looking at a stage. If you're going to get what you need, you need to be in a group where you're sitting in a circle or some other venue like that, looking at other people, talking to other people. You're opening up the book together, discussing it. You're praying over one another's needs together. You're ministering to one another together. You're holding one another accountable. By the way, don't we all need that? I mean, don't we need someone who is willing that we trust from time to time to look us in the eyes and say, what are you doing? We all need that. That's why you need to get in a life group. You have those on Sunday morning. If you're not in a life group, you can go to one of those. But, but I tell you, I would encourage you, if you're not, or even if you are, to sign up for our end groups that are starting in the fall. These groups, I believe with all my heart, will revolutionize you spiritually and relationally. You need to get connected. You need to get plugged in. I want you to listen to what Solomon said in verses 9 through 12. Again, he had this, this moment of clarity. And he said, two people are better off than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can calm, can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better if her triple braided cord is not easily broken. Solomon is saying, God didn't intend for you to live life alone. And loneliness isn't fair. Don't live that way. And then he said, man's approval is like dust in the wind. I want you to listen to what he says beginning in verse 13. It's actually kind of humorous. He said, it is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him, but then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it all is meaningless like chasing the wind. But what Solomon is saying here is you can be on the top of the world. Everybody can love you. Everybody can be cheering for you. Everybody can want to be a part of your tribe. But in a moment, in an instant, in a heartbeat, everybody can turn on you. Everybody can hate you. Politicians know this. Athletes know this. Actors and actresses know this. CEOs know this. Even pastors know this. I mean, the fact of the matter is, popularity is fleeting. It's fleeting. And sometimes it's not our fault. You may be doing all the right things, and yet some new thing comes along that's more popular, and people now like them better than you. Life's not fair. So what do we do? I mean, if life's not fair, what do we do? Do we ball our fist up and 
yell out to the heavens, God is not fair, or you just uh, not powerful enough to help, or you don't care, God, why don't you do something? Or, or do we trust God? Because I'm here to tell you, God is fair. I mean, even though life isn't fair, all throughout Scripture we're told God is fair. In Psalms chapter 111, verse 7, it says God is always honest and fair, and His laws can be trusted. All three of those truths are truthful. God is always honest. God is always fair. God's law, God's word can always be trusted. Proverbs 21, verse 12, God is always fair. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, God is fair. And I could quote verse after verse after verse in the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us the same thing. God is fair. Life will never be fair under the sun. That doesn't mean we don't strive for fairness. That doesn't mean that we don't try to protect the underdog and the oppressed. And we don't work for justice. We do. We have to as followers of Jesus. But we come to realize that in a sinful world filled with sinful people, there's always going to be injustice. There's always going to be oppression. There's always going to be envy and greed and loneliness. We, we can't eradicate it this side of eternity. But praise God, he one day will, amen. There is coming a day when God's fairness will take over. So we're going to either look around and become cynical, or we're going to look up and trust God. The choice is us. But I'm here to tell you that one day God will judge fairly. So if you're here today and you're saying, I'm just wanting what's due me, you'll get it. One day. Because when every person stands before God, there are no favorites. You can't grease the palm of someone who created everything from nothing. He doesn't take a bribe. He will judge fairly. And justice will rule. But here's the deal. When he judges us fairly, and we must all appear before him, that's what the Bible says. Everybody, everybody will appear before him. He'll judge us all the same. And when he looks at you, I want you to hear me. You may have been treated unjustly. But I guarantee you, he will show you injustice in your life. You may have been oppressed, but I guarantee you, he will show you times that you were the oppressor. You may think it wasn't fair because you were blessed and you had things and everybody was upset that you had those things. Trust me, when you stand before God, he's going to make all of those things right. And if you're standing before God on your own, as he judges fairly and justly, you're not going to like it. Because you, me, 
And every one of us, we're guilty. We're guilty. When we step on the scales of God's justice and righteousness, we're not going to measure up. And our only hope, God's grace, God's mercy. I mean, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because there's always going to be injustice this side of eternity. There's always going to be oppression this side of eternity. There's always going to be envy. There's always going to be all of these painful, hurtful things. And the truth of the matter is we are the cause. But Jesus came so that instead of justice, we can experience grace. We can be forgiven. And here's what you need to know. This is the miraculous part of knowing Jesus. When you experience His grace, when you experience His mercy, when you come to that point where you know what He has done for you, it changes everything about you. And when you look at the injustice in the world, you want to be part of the solution. When you look at the oppression, you want to help the powerless. When you realize how blessed you are, you want to use your things for God's glory and God's honor. When you see people who are lonely, you want to bring them in and make them part of the family. Why? Because you've experienced His grace and His mercy. He's changed your life. So has He changed your life? You see, we may not be able to change everything here on this earth while we're here because sin and Satan reigns today. But we can live for Him and make a difference if we know him. So do you know him? I mean, can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, he has changed me. Anything about me. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you say, Rocky, man, I don't know if I know him. I don't know if I've ever been changed. And today you're ready. You're ready to humble yourself before God and give Him your all. Then I want to encourage you right now to pray this prayer to Him. Dear God, I humbly come to you today acknowledging my sin. Forgive me. I've lived life my way. Like I'm on the throne. Sorry. Jesus, I know you came to this earth. I know you died on the cross in my place for my sins. And I know that you rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Today I'm trusting you. 
take control of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for hearing.